When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's rocking out and enjoying some tunes. Hope everybody's listening to the music they love. Hope everybody's trying to get into something new. I mean, there's a lot of great new rock and roll, as I've been talking about here for the last several months. And there's a lot of new music coming out uh, this year. There's a lot of new stuff that's already come out, coming out or has already come out, I should say, like the Richie Kotzen album. You've got the George Lynch, Dirty Shirley. You've got a whole bunch of stuff that's awesome. I mean, this is really a big year for rock music, in my opinion. Whether it's mainstream popularity or whether it gains any traction, doesn't matter. It's all about the music. It's all about the good stuff, and there's going to be plenty of it in 2020 some big tours have been announced since we last spoke or over the last week you've got judas priest who just announced their 50th anniversary tour check their website or all their social media platforms to see if they're coming to a town close to you i know they do a lot of theater shows they're not really a stadium act at this point when they're just headlining um You know, I know they're doing the Rosemont Theater, which is just outside of Chicago. And I know they're, I think they're doing the Paps Theater out in Milwaukee, which is about, I don't know, five to 8,000 capacity, maybe just under 10. Uh, So get your tickets for that. The Blackberry Smoke Tour was just announced, the Celebration of the South. Check out that on their social media platforms and their website. I'm excited about that. They are a great band live as well. Two bands on at both ends of the spectrum. You've got Blackberry Smoke, which is Southern Rock. You've got Judas Priest, which is one of the forefathers of heavy metal. And that leads us to our next discussion, which is about the new wave of British heavy metal, a discussion I, I've been wanting to have for quite some time. And we'd like to welcome in Josh, the decanter of doom on Twitter. What's going on, man? How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about this. Yeah, this is such an interesting subject because it really doesn't capture a wide audience in terms of the popularity of the bands and the popularity of the music and how it influenced everything after that. I mean, of course, Iron Maiden was part of that. 
Def Leppard was part of that. There's other, you know, some bands that people may recognize the name, but it really was a primitive time back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and we're going to get into it. But first, we always ask the same first question every time we have a first-time guest on the show. Josh is up on the hook rocks. The question is essentially what the show is about. Just like every great rock song has a hook, every rock band has a moment, whether it's an album, a song, a band, or a performance. What hooked you, Josh? Well, appropriately, it was Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest. Um, I remember it came out in 82. I listened to it on my Sony Walkman, and I couldn't stop listening to it. And I thought it was like nothing I'd ever heard. I'd listened to a lot of rock music before, but more of the Bill Collins, Huey Lewis, and the news variety. I liked Rainbow. That was about as heavy as I was getting at the time, and that was Rainbow with Joe Lynn Turner. Um, I hadn't quite gotten into Deep Purple yet. This is because of MTV. And I saw Judas Priest on, I think, one of those concerts at the Saturday night 1130 concerts that MTV always used to have, which was on the Screaming for Vengeance tour. And I just thought, what the hell is going on? And they sounded so good. And then you listen to that album, and it's perfect from start to finish. Every mo- There's not a bad moment on it. The production is great. It's just I can still listen to it now. It's like 40 minutes long. It's just a perfect album. I think that, you know, when you talk about perfect albums in the world, that to me is one of the top 10 I would take on a, on a desert island. And that's what got me started into all of this and true metal. Judas Priest was such a interesting band in, in if you grew up in the early 80s, and it sounds like you and I are close to the same age. Um, I discovered Judas Priest, and I talk about this in our introduction episode. My brother brought home a like a mixtape and one of his buddies had put two Judas Priest songs on the tape and back then you know this is before my brother or I bought a stereo so it was like that recorder where you put a disc in and you press play and it had that speaker like on the side it was like maybe the the size Mm -hmm. of like a a shoe box or a cracker box or something like that and it had that one you know speaker that sounded like crap and there's two songs where you got another thing coming and Diamonds and Rust from Unleashed in the East. And was it from, was it Unleashed in the East that Diamonds and Rust is on? I think it is, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the live album that was on, yeah, which is yeah. the version I think that everybody's most familiar with. Yes, yes. So that was the version. That was the first time I heard Priest. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know who Rob Halford was. I just... Heard this song, You Got Another Thing Coming, and Diamonds and Rust, and I was floored because the vocal range of Halford was, I mean, up until then, I mean, I'd heard Van Halen, I'd heard Journey, um, heard Kiss, heard ACDC, you know, I've heard, I heard some of the bands, but no one really had that range that Rob Halford had. And then as the neighborhood grew or the kids in the neighborhood got older, we all started listening to metal and hard rock at the time, and what was considered heavy metal back then, some of it still would be considered heavy metal, some of it wouldn't. But I remember someone having the British Steel album and playing that too as well. And then, of course, 
the U.S. Festival in 83, which I don't know if you saw or, or had the pleasure of seeing, but Priest was on there, and they were incredible. And that was the first time you got to see what they looked like, for me at least. Yeah, and I, I did not see that when it was when it happened. But I, I know it was on MTV, but I just didn't catch it, and I didn't happen to have my VCR set to record. And so it was lost at the time, but I've watched a lot of it on YouTube since then. And yeah, that Judas Priest set is amazing. Also, how high that drum riser is yeah, is yeah. insane. It's like a three-story building, but you just don't see that anymore. No. And yeah, that set it was awesome. But I remember all the controversy surrounding them, too. I mean, I I went to a Catholic school, so a lot of the music that I listened to, I mean, I had to sneak into the house. I had to put the headphones on like you had with your Walkman, and, you know, so my mother wouldn't hear. I mean, I remember, you know, saying the name of the band Judas Priest, and I thought my mother had seen a ghost, you know, and, it, you know, even with Ozzy Osbourne with, all the stuff and controversies with him. I mean, it was a very primitive time because you had, you know, the, the, the new cable platform. So you had access to this music that was a different, it was visual and everybody was listening to this. I mean, every kid in the neighborhood for the most part was listening to hard rock, heavy metal. And we would trade tapes. We would trade music. And priest was one of those bands that, at the time, I think they were even probably more popular than Maiden. Um, you know, Maiden, of course, has certainly passed them as as in, in terms of international popularity since then. But I think back then, Priest was really where it was at in terms of metal and in terms of just you know being a rebellious kid and what that meant. Yeah, I think that's important. Priest came out in, what was it, 74, 75 or something like that. Iron Maiden didn't come out until, the first album come, didn't come out until 1980. So, first of all, Judas Priest had a bit of a head start, but also Iron Maiden really hit big with Power Slave. And I think we could say that the new wave of British heavy metal was probably over at that point. Maybe that's what ended it, not in a bad way necessarily, but I remember I saw that tour. I grew up in Akron, Ohio. So I saw it at the Richfield Coliseum. It was Iron Maiden headlining with Quiet Riot as the second opening act, and then the first opening act was White Snake. And this is when they were, I think, when they slided into our answer event. And so that was before they got big in the States. They were huge in Europe and were a big deal there, but here they weren't anything. And John Lord was, I think, still their keyboard player then. And I was just starting to understand what Deep Purple was and how important they were, but at the same time, Iron Maiden with Power Slave and all of that. The imagery and the backdrop that they had in the stage set, and then Quiet Right was just a good, solid band. It was awesome. And I think that you could go to shows like that and see those three bands at those stages of development was just amazing. And I was 13, 14 years old at the time, so it was perfect. Yeah, it's a really interesting moment, especially the early 80s of hard rock and heavy metal. I mean, you mentioned Maiden, who we're gonna, probably going to talk about a lot over the next hour. But Maiden, you know, their first album wasn't until 1980. I mean, they had that following in the U.K. as they were growing. But they were really, you know, 
none of that stuff was mainstream. So in my opinion, I think everybody started to recognize Maiden with the Number of the Beast album because that cover art was just so like like nothing any kid had ever seen before. And, yeah. you know, of course you had Killers and you had the debut album and, of course, that. But really with Bruce Dickinson, they were brought out to the forefront. I mean, they had Run to the Hills on there. You had the title track, Number of the Beast. You had Hallowed Be Thy Name, Children of the Damned, all those great songs. And then you had Peace of Mind with Trooper. And I remember the videos for Trooper and Flight of Icarus. I don't know if Revelations had a video. I don't remember. But um, I think the reason why Power Slave was so big for them was because as MTV started to grow and become more popular, a lot of those albums from those quote-unquote underground bands, like your Maidens, like your um, Motley Crues, and, and all that stuff, really started to gain momentum as MTV became a thing. Um, you know, because Aces High was such a cool video, you know, of, of course, with the Churchill you know, intro, and then, of course, you had Two Minutes to Midnight, and, you know, again, another really interesting cover with, you know, the Egyptian pyramids and, and you know, Eddie being, you know, part of that, and, you know, it was just incredible experience digesting it both visually and through your ears as well. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I remember it's on the same with you. I did not go to a Catholic school. I just went to a public school. So the, the Satan religious imagery wasn't so controversial. However, I did, my mom and I would go to this place called Gold Circle, which was a, uh, a Coles, I guess, or something back in the day in Akron. And she would occasionally buy me an album. And I bought Holy Diver, Theo's first album, where he's drowning a priest with a chain, or the devil figure drowning a priest with a chain and even then my mom was not even close to religion I hid it in the car so she wouldn't see what was being bought and then I just kind of like stood in front of the album <laughs> to check out because I thought oh my god like this is too much but um yeah I mean MTV was such a big part of it and the whole my friends and I we played not to go down this rabbit hole but just quickly we played D&D and role playing games and it was all kind of part of the same in a way where we would set up worlds that were like the power slave cover and all that and imagine that and it was just kind of part of this like little club that we were part of and doing these things and listening to this music and it was just it was great to put it all together as kind of part of one moment that's one of the things that I love about the new wave of British, British heavy metal and that original kind of older metal is that when you see somebody and you don't always see or meet people who like that kind of music, especially nowadays, you have to really spot them um, wearing a t-shirt or something like that. You immediately feel like you have some kind of kinship with them and you can immediately sit down and talk to them for two or three hours about music like we're doing right now and bond with them. And you don't even have to know their name or know anything about them or where they're from or anything. It's just this, and I still feel that to this day with that in Saxon, I think is one of those bands that you know, they sing about that a lot at that community and, um, and denim and leather. And it's, you know, it's a denim and leather thing where it was before hair metal and all of that. I'm sure some of them had, were putting Aquanet or whatever, their hair or whatever else. But it was just this real thing. that was just about the music. It was kind of a, a niche thing 
where if you knew it, you knew it. If you didn't, you didn't care. And we didn't care if you didn't know it because the people who did know it were the cool ones. And that's who we wanted to hang out with anyways and listen to that music. And that's what you would do. You just sit around and listen to that music and talk about that music. And I'm still doing it. Um, however many years, 40 years later. Sleep, I still get just as excited about it. Sleepovers with your friends was, you know, eating, you know, junk food, watching horror movies, you know, and like really like B-rated horror movies. Like, I don't know if anybody remembers like Happy Birthday to Me or Cat People, stuff like that, like that you it, that people don't even know about even exist, you know, now, you know, I mean, you'd watch these movies till three in the morning and you talk about music with your friends because everybody was between the ages. I mean, I got into to metal because of my older brother. So I was probably eight years old, nine years old. So mm-hmm. there, there were two generations in my neighborhood. There was the kids that were my age. And then there was the kids that was my brother's age. So everything would get filtered down what they were listening to. We would eventually catch up with and listen to as well. So it was a really, it was an interesting dynamic and I just remember, you know, people forget about the early part of the 80s. They all talk about the hair bands of, you know, I still say that the back cover of Theater of Pain with Motley Crue changed everything, along with the, the song Home Sweet Home. That changed the game of hard rock and metal. It became more image-based, became more with the power ballad. But those first three, four years of metal in the 80s was very raw. And it was very, like, it, it was primitive. It was simple. You know, there were no frills to it. You know, even even outside of the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, American bands like Y&T or listen to that early Rat record, that first EP by Rat, that is completely different than anything they released after that. It's really hard and heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, listen to the yeah. early Dokken stuff, how... How simple it is in the production, the, the you know the first Motley Crue album. So the stuff was going on in America in the early '80s, but the new wave of British heavy metal was really the first moment in hard rock metal music that you saw the direct influences of Zeppelin, Sabbath, Purple, and Rainbow, and those yeah. were those bands that really influenced the whole new wave of British heavy metal. I know Def Leppard talks about a lot of T-Rex and Sweet. And Def Leppard, even though they don't like to talk about it or connect themselves with the new wave of British heavy metal, their first couple of records were definitely part of it. On Through the Night and High and Dry. That was definitely part of the new wave of British heavy metal. You talk, We talked about Maiden, probably the biggest band of that era that came out with their debut record, then Killers, Number of the Beast. They were huge in that movement. There's bands like Saxon. There's bands like Tokyo Blade. There's bands like Tank, who I absolutely love, Angel Witch and Holocaust and all these bands. Do you consider Motorhead part of the new wave of British heavy metal? I think I do, because I was thinking about this, and as I was getting ready to to talk to you I was listening to their albums and their first album the self-titled debut album Motorhead with the song Motorhead by the band Motorhead who came out in 77 punk album 
And then you fast forward to 79 and bomber and overkill and suddenly there's a motorhead that we all know and love. You know, the, the metal band really well produced all of a sudden and not all of a sudden, but you know, that's what takes it up and notch for these bands. So yeah, I do because they were right there in the thick of it. Sure. Lenny had been around for a while also, but I don't think any, none of this fits cleanly into it's 1979 or it's 1980. This is when it starts and this is when it ends. There are things that are ebbing and flowing and people that kind of come in for a little bit and leave or whatever else. Death Leopard, yeah, they don't like to talk about it, but those two, those first two albums elevated it and what it was because they were really good and more melodic maybe than some of those bands were. He's a cleaner singer. The harmonies were really good and well-developed even before they were doing the multi-layering stuff with Mutt Lang and all of that. And I think that they elevated what it is. I think they should be proud to say that maybe they moved on, became something else, or maybe the movement wasn't there anymore, so there wasn't anything to be part of. But those albums are great, and are they, I think, really distinguish, them, distinguish themselves from some of the other bands, and that's why they became as huge as they did. I think Def Leppard... Yeah, Motorhead, absolutely. I think Def Leppard is a lot like Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin fiercely runs away from any label of heavy metal. They, you know, they, they, they would not appear on that metal show by Jimmy Page or Plant because of the word metal was in there. They don't like to be anywhere near that word or any, anywhere near that label. Um, and I think Def Leppard is, is very similar in that. They don't want to be, you know, and people always say Def Leppard's not heavy metal. Back in the day... Def Leppard was heavy metal. Uh, On Through the Night, The High and Dry, and even, you know, some even consider Pyromania, you know, with, with you know, with songs like Stage Fright and Rock Rock 2, you drop very heavy metal. So it was, like you said, it was more melodic, it was more layered than the first two, but what was metal back then, sure, you may not consider it now, but they were once considered that. But I think they're very similar to Zeppelin in that they don't like that heavy metal label. They don't like to be connected to it. Some bands are very sensitive to that. Um, you know, it's their decision, I guess. I mean, I, like, like you said, I think they should celebrate it more, you know, especially those first two records, which a lot of people don't know about. You know, a lot of people who are in the pyromania and the hysteria don't really know what Leopard was like prior to that. Um, even their EP, which had, I think, Me and My Wine on it, was that one? And, and uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even some of the early stuff. And I know they're supposed to be releasing, like, some sort of anniversary disc with a lot of that older stuff on there. Um, and I think people will be surprised, especially their big fans who may not know some of that material, how different it was. And, if, of course, we all know losing... You know, the drummer, Rick Allen, losing his arm really changed the sound of Leopard. But there were rumblings even before that, how before the car accident, of how they were moving to change their sound from Pyromania moving forward. Now, as far as Motorhead goes, um, I've always been in the camp that doesn't consider them new wave of British heavy metal. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to that. I know... Some people are very adamant about including them. Some people are adamant about not including them. I just, you know, for whatever reason, I look at them more in the in the priest type of era than the new wave of British heavy metal. But 
I understand why people do because it was very close. It was kind of like right, you know, before the movement started, that first album came out. But they were, you know, they were had a huge presence with even like you mentioned with Bomber and Overkill, and then their their live album No Sleep Till Hammersmith, which was a huge live record as well. But as I talked to Brian Tatler in the interview that um, aired yesterday, you know, we talked a lot about the production of those albums by a lot of those bands. And you talk about the Diamond Heads and, you know, their albums sounded a lot cleaner, but there were a lot of bands coming out in that era that were just trying to pump out music. And they really didn't invest in the production. You know, like I, 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 I love this band, Witchfind, um, which is one of my favorite bands from that era. And love the mm-hmm. record, the production on it, is suspect. Same thing with Tank. If you want to find, you know, if you want to listen to a band that's very close to Motorhead and their sound and then their style, Tank is a band that you would like if you're a Motorhead fan. The production kind of suspect, um, and that's kind of the disappointing part about that era is there's a lot of great music, but depending on what studio they used and how much they spent on production. It, it doesn't punch you like some of the other, like, like you know, like, like the stuff that Saxon released really punches you. The Angel Witch album really punches you. And some of the Tank yeah. stuff does, you know, but I think that quality of production was really missing during that era. Well, and even the first time I made that album um, is, is poor, I think, poorly produced. And from Iron Maiden to Killers, you notice, oh, now these guys are really ready for it because the first one is just kind of muddy and, and they sound great. It's still clearly Iron Maiden, but the production was not quite there. It's interesting to kind of see where that was going. I mean, did people just know, not know how to record that type of music? You know, was that it? You know, because it was, it was really straightforward rock and roll. It was, you know, fast, hard rock. I mean, people, when they were producing that stuff, did they just not know, you know, how to produce it, how to make it sound good. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. I bet, I, I bet some did and some didn't because just the people like the Martin Burgess, the Mutt Langs of the world, they clearly knew how to, and they made classic albums um, with those bands. You know, I was just, you probably know this book louder than hell, the, the definitive oral history of metal. Yes. I was also reading through parts of that, thinking about this conversation and one of the parts that they put into the new wave of British heavy metal just because it's in this time period was the recording of Heaven and Hell the first Black Sabbath album with with Dio and they said the the label would not support it because Ozzy wasn't part of it and they didn't understand why Ozzy wouldn't be part of that album or why they wouldn't just somehow make it happen that Ozzy would be part of it so they weren't putting up any money for it and so those guys Tony Iommi Geezer Butler, Bill Warden, and Ronnie Dio put up their own money for it. And I don't want to say that you can hear it in the production because it's certainly not a fully released album because those guys had made a lot of albums so they knew what they were doing. But then you listen to the Mob Rules after that and I think the production is not quite like night and day but it's so much crisper and it's so much just, like just right in your face, the production of it. They're both great albums but they sound so much different in terms of the production. And it's, I don't know, I was thinking that it could be because 
down and how they prove themselves, then suddenly they have a budget again and the, and the, um, the label is paying for it and the mob rules. So I think that you do know, have to know how to produce that, but you also need a producer who really knows it and likes that music and isn't just mailing it in. It's actually a creative partner and part of it. Yeah, that's interesting because I do. There is a production difference on Heaven and Hell versus the Mob Rules. Um, the Mob Rules has that kick, has that more full sound. That, like you said, Heaven and Hell is not horrible, but the levels seem to be a little off on that record. Um, yeah, and I don't know if I think I do have the remastered version, and I don't know if it really improved it to where that that type of production is is gone i think it still kind of lingers but like you i agree with you when you listen to mob rules it's a completely different feel and vibe than than heaven and hell and a lot of that's because of the production all these albums i think the the production that's what really distinguishes these bands even diamond head their their albums are just just really well produced just really clear and just and then there are others that just aren't that and I think that those bands, if they aren't able to get past the hump of touring and having a hit or having a following, they aren't able to get to that next level of production and then really take it to the next level of the band. Yeah, I agree with that. And and when I was talking with Brian, he mentioned that they did, you know, spend money on production. They did, they were, they came in a lot more prepared than some of the other bands. I think Diamond Head, I think all their records sound great um, during that period. I think Saxon's records sound really good. You know, um, you know, Maiden Killers sounds great. I think uh, Def Leppard stuff sounds good. You know, Tokyo Blade, I think their albums sound really good too as well. Angel Witch. Um, but, you know, there's that album by Savage uh, that, you know, that's one of the, forget the song that uh, Metallica covers by Savage and the production on that is just the levels are just completely off uh, when you listen to like I said Tank uh, the filthy the filthy hounds filth hounds of Hades right I think that's the name of the album uh, the production so, on, yeah the production on that if you listen from like the first song to the last song the production like slowly you know, wanes off like throughout the whole album. Like the first song, the production's great. By the last song, you're like, there's like so much, you know, there, there, there's like, I forget how they, what they, what the technical term is for it, but the sound quality is just kind of like someone got tired and just wanted to go home that night, I think. And just, um, <laughs> you, you know, and, and I will say, I don't really, really say that an album sucks. You know, I never really say that. If I didn't like it, I'll just I just won't comment on it, or I'll just say you know it hasn't connected with me. But the last Tank album that uh, that was released, I think last year or 2018, has to be one of the worst albums I have ever heard in my life. And in terms of the production of it, it is brutal. It sounds like the, it, it was like too like like boom boxes put like together and one hit record one hit play and that's how they recorded the album it is it is brutal and i don't know why someone would release that if you if you have a chance to listen to it josh after this i don't know if you've heard it but just for shits and grins 
um, check it out. And I guarantee you, you'll be like, this is actually a release. Does someone actually release yeah. this album? And I don't know why they do that. I have but I'm curious. Yeah. yeah, and I love Tank. Tank is one of my favorite bands from the new wave of British heavy metal era because it's very much like Motorhead. It's got a huge attitude. It's really raw, and it's got so much energy in, in the music and so much, such a great vibe. And I don't know what happened. I, I, you know, I think there's two versions of Tank. I think that's what's been going on, kind of like uh, now with K.K. Downing Priest and regular Judas Priest or like the Great White and Jack Russell's Great White. I think that's what's going on. So I think Algie's album, he's the founding singer and bass player, I think his version is the one that's not so good. And the other guys that are doing it um, kind of really know what they're doing. And I know um, there's been some talk about them possibly coming back to America for a tour, and I'd love to see that. I've never seen them live. Well, and that's the case with a lot of these bands. If you start deep diving on Wikipedia, which I have done, and I'm sure you have too, and listening to the albums as you're doing it, is that so many of them, they were, they had their time in the early 80s, or into the mid-80s, and it didn't quite work out for them because of all, it became hair metal or whatever you want to call it after that, and they just were not part of that, so they disbanded, people, somebody died, they had fights, whatever, and then they come back again now in some kind of configuration, and they don't have certain original original members, who always seem to be the key original members that are missing. Yeah. And usually that's oftentimes it's the singer, which is the most identifiable um, after a guitar player, I guess. And so it's just, it becomes kind of strange and also interesting. And they put out good stuff, but it's just, it's interesting how they they come together now. But it's great that they have an audience, that they're still doing it. And the people are still coming to see them. I think that's important and and really fun for the people that like that music and still remember it. But it's interesting to see, and it's hard to keep up with who becomes what and what those different configurations are. I will say that the website Discogs will be the death of me because I I went on a big new wave of British heavy metal kick about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And I was spending money on discs, you know, that were rare, that were hard to find on new wave of British heavy metal bands. Like, you know, like this rare tank album and this rare Vardis record and, you know, Tigers of Pantang. I will say, though, I was at a, I go to these record conventions every now and then outside of Chicago. They just sell vinyl and they sell bootlegs and, and stuff. And so I was thumbing through some albums, just kind of seeing what they had, like these bins of, of, of vinyl. And my son, who was 12 at the time, 12 or 13, comes up to me. He's like, Dad, you got to get this. And I go, what is it? And I look over, and it's Tigers of Pan Tang Spellbound. And what other 12, 13-year-old kid would tell their old man, you got to get this, Dad. It's Tigers of Pantang. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, that well, it's was got a great cover. Yeah. Oh, it's an awesome cover. I mean, all that stuff. That's another thing, too, about those bands was the visual imagery, you know, like of the cover of the album, whether it was Tigers of Pantang or whether it was Maiden, whether it was Tank or whether it was whomever. 
they always had like this this very cool cover and artwork. I mean, the Angel Witch album or the album by Holocaust is just like you're, you know, and, and it, a lot of it had to do with like medieval stuff or war or, you know, that, that, that type of subject matter. Um, it was just interesting because it was like you had this artwork that was so cool and then you listened to the album and the music always fit the, the cover of the record. Yes. And I'm looking at the cover of um, Spellbound right now. And I know that somebody would say, who is not into this kind of music, that that's a cheesy album cover. How could you possibly think that's cool? I would look at that and say, how can you not think it's cool? Every single one of these album covers has some kind of, I don't even want to call it mystique, but if you're into comic books, which I was, I still, I still am, you look at this thing and it just suddenly takes you into something and you just start imagining what is this and then you hear the music and it, you're right it always goes with it and it's just a really great marriage of the two and and they actually cared about it I think uh, most fans would say that they care about album art all that now I think nobody does and it, I, but I think that if you don't have the members of the band on the album then you're taking a great first step to having a really interesting album cover. And none of these bands almost, they almost never had, I, I can't think of, I'm sure there are many, but right now I'm not thinking of one that has the members of the bands on the cover, on the back cover, sure. But not on the front cover. It just wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Which is kind of cool when you think about it. I'm trying to run through my Rolodex in my head of what you know the statement you just made and i'm like yeah he's right there's there, i can't think of one album from that era that had the band on the cover i'm sure there are i'm sure there's you know some of the bands that maybe you know didn't undoubtedly re- you know didn't reach you know the, the level of status of some of the bands we're talking about maybe they did but you know the big bands you know i mean they all they all had that iconic logo you know, whether it was Maiden or whether it was Saxon. I mean, Tokyo Blades logo was just incredible. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, Tank with the yellow and black, you know, and the Tank underneath it. I mean, and they were always singing about war. That was Tank's big thing. You know, they were always singing about, like, you know, the front lines and battles and stuff. And a lot of those bands kind of right. did that, you know. I mean, I'm also thinking about Tigers of Pantang, you know, with their logo and all their album covers always had a tiger on it. Um, Praying Mantis had really cool covers, you know, for their albums. Uh, you know, Angel Witch is... I, 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 th- I still think that Angel Witch debut album is one of the best heavy metal albums of all time. That's a great record. It's really good. And I... I want to say until recently, had never even heard of them. And I mean, that's the, the nice thing about uh, digital music. That a lot of the stuff is available now and it's easy to find. Back when I was a kid in the early 80s, I was trying to find this stuff. It was all mail or, or record conventions. But in Akron, Ohio, I did go to Chicago for a couple of record conventions when I was a teenager with my dad and a friend of mine. And I had to, and I, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was a mail-order thing where I would order a poster of Richie Blackmore or a poster of Black Sabbath with the upside-down burning cross with Black Sabbath written in it, which I can still do right now with my eyes closed. I always do it on the covers. 
an upside down pentagram with a goat's head in it, which I can also still do with my eyes closed. And you would find albums by Dylan and all this stuff or some bootleg tapes, but some of this stuff just didn't rise up. I just had never heard of them before, but you listen to it now. And first of all, I think the singer from Angel, which sounds, sounds a lot like Brett Michaels, but not, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but it's just interesting to me that his voice uh, so, hey, he sounds like Brett Michaels, and also he sounds very modern. And this was a long time ago. And I think that going back and discovering that stuff now, for somebody who just didn't have an opportunity to hear every single piece of that, I, I heard what I could get to, but I, some of it I just couldn't get to. It, it's endlessly fascinating. And people talk about, when I was listening to your uh, interview with, with Rudy Tarza, and saying, you know, what's happened to Rock now? And I was and the first thing I thought was, I don't care what's happened to Rock now because I'm still discovering stuff from 20 or 30 or 40 years ago that I never heard. I'm good. And, you know, I can listen to, I'm still finding new music that's old on an almost daily basis. And a lot of it is from this time period. It, to me, it just keeps on giving. And that's why I think it's really important and something that needs to be talked about and celebrated more, not to sound too cheesy, but because I, I think it's really important and it's really good for all the reasons we've just been talking about for the last hour. Yeah. I think, you know, if you, if you look at it as the visual piece, right, let's start with that. I mean, we talked about the album covers. We talked about the iconic logos these bands had. um, And it would just, you know, motivate your image imagination to go places. And, you know, as a young boy, especially, I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to be, sexist here or anything like that but this really wasn't a female genre of music you know there's not too many women that know about holocaust and know about tank and all these bands i mean it was predominantly male and a young kid like you mentioned dungeons and dragons i really wasn't into that but i still had a very keen imagination on you know letting my mind kind of wander and like you said you know you'd look at these album covers and you kind of would get lost in it so you had the the visual piece in how you absorb it, and then you had the music. Um, you know, the music. A lot, a lot of these bands had great musicians. There were, you know, I mean, you know, we talk, we talk about Maiden and the Diamond Heads, and and you know, the Saxon guys, and, and all. The, they were good musicians, but there were a lot of bands that didn't have a lot of depth in terms of musicianship. It, it, you know, there's a lot of songs that do sound similar and that's and I always say to myself that's part of the the lore of the whole thing that's part of the whole experience you know because you're like you'd listen to a guitar riff and you'd be like well didn't I hear that on this album or there'd be like the same title songs I mean I've got like I've got a lot of discs of the new wave of British heavy metal a lot of vinyl and I guarantee you there's at least four bands that have a song called Spellbound and <laughs> You know, and then and then and then also they would also have songs about their the name of their band. Like Iron Maiden had a song called Iron Maiden, and Angel Witch has a song called Angel Witch, and you know whatever. I mean, there was a lot of bands that would write a song about their 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 name band, and then how these guys look. They all do. Yeah, they, I mean, pretty ninety percent of them do, and the way they look too. I mean, there was no there was no Aquanet. Okay, first of all, it was basically jeans, a T-shirt, and I'm talking like a T-shirt of nothing, just a white T-shirt or a black T-shirt, 
or whatever and a jean jacket and you know pimples and warts and whatever were just right front and center they didn't care there was no conscious effort to you know maybe look at their change their image i mean there were a few bands i mean maiden of course and saxon and you know of course the ones that really were elevated had had more i think put forth a more of an effort of how they looked but when you look at those back album covers i mean they're very simple i mean it's these are young kids most of them and influenced by sabbath influenced by purple rainbow zeppelin and the reason why this era is so important is because it was the bridge from those four bands and there's probably some other that i'm not naming it was the bridge from those bands to the Metallica movement, okay? Because, you know, especially Lars from Metallica wears his influence of new wave of British heavy metal on his sleeve. I and mean, if you look at a lot of the covers that Metallica has done over the years, 80% of them, 90% of them are all from this era. They were heavily influenced by these bands, and it is essentially the bridge from those four legacy bands of the 70s to thrash of the 80s i don't think thrash happens without that bridge i don't i don't either and i and i think that i think you're exactly right and i love your inclusion rainbow in that too because i think that rainbow their albums with with ronnie Dio were so important nobody talks about them people like us talk about them but they're just not they're just not remembered. And to me, those were the albums that really sold me on this. I just, I love Richie Blackmore. I still do. He's my number one favorite guitarist. And I think he's criminally underrated. And as soon as you hear him, you know exactly who it is. I heard Smoke on the Water the other day, which is not a song that I really listen to anymore because I've heard it probably more times than almost any other song. But it came on the radio and I just listened to it from start to finish and I thought, this is a good song. And his guitar sound is so identifiable and there's just nothing like it. And I think that, I mean, yes, I agree with you a hundred percent without them. And then without this bridge, you don't get to where we are now. You look at the crowd of the Metallica concert. Now I was watching that movie, um, through the never, their movie that they did from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And you look at everybody in that crowd. They're just wearing t-shirts with Metallica or other band names on it, they're wearing denim vests. That's the look. And I just, I wear rock t-shirts every single day of my life. Not at work, but when I'm, when I get home, I'm wearing a Metallica hoodie right now with a Metallica t-shirt underneath it. And every single day I'm wearing that rainbow rising, all of that. I love it. And I'm proud of it. And I think that you're right. Like all of that is a clear line through. And, it's really important and it's just really great music that I wish more people paid attention to and liked because there was a time and it was a great time when everybody liked it or at least would like some version of it. It was like Skid Row, which is all great too. And the Skid Row Ballad or Photograph, which is also an excellent song, or even Pour Some Sugar on Me, all that. When it was still heavy or had it or were bands that were evolving from heavy metal to pop rock or pop metal, all that. It was a great time for music. And I kind of miss it sometimes. <laughs> I 
for me. I'm old and I don't care, so I'm still just to it and living it. I don't care what's happening. Well, I think more so than any other genre, heavy metal, hard rock relied so much on the physical and visual experience because it was an event. You know, I mean, I don't know where... 80s rock where it would have gone without MTV, the visual part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, because MTV put hard rock, heavy metal on the map. And I, I just don't know what would have happened if there wasn't that push because in the early 80s, when, when MTV was starting out, I mean, that's predominantly what they played. Of course, they played stuff like, you know, the Michael Jacksons and the Duran Duran, but late night MTV was a lot different than during the day. And as that music kept growing and growing and got a little bit more of a female audience, it it just blew up. But the early stages of that are the new wave of British heavy metal, the early, early sunset strip scene. You know, like I'm not talking about all the bands that came after Rat and Quiet Riot and Motley Crue. I'm talking about those three bands specifically and some others like Rough Cut and Black and Blue, you know, that were a little bit more raw and a little bit more, you know, I think they were a little bit more prettier in terms of their look than the guys coming from the UK. But, you know, I remember, you know, the term burnout when I was a kid, you know, and those were the those are the kids wearing the Iron Maiden back patch and the Judas Priest back patch with the jean jacket and all that stuff. But that was the look of the new wave of British heavy metal. They were basically emulating what they saw on the back covers of these albums, you know, and mm-hmm. it had such an impact because it really was, and there was a little bit of a punk influence in a lot of those bands too. I mean, we talked, you know, we've talked about tank. If you want to listen to a little, I don't know if you've ever listened to Vardis, which is another band that I just love. Um, I, I forget the name of the band Vivian Campbell was in before he started with Dio. Uh, I can't remember. And then there was white spirit that was another band that doesn't get enough credit uh, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal band called millennium that I have some music from them too, as well. There's so much stuff. I don't know any of those. Oh, I mean, if, if, have you heard, have you heard of Savage? Yes, I've heard of them, but I can't say I know them. Okay. Savage is great. Uh, Vardis is one of my, oh, Vardis has got a great groove. Uh, Tokyo blade. Have you heard of quartz? No. Quartz is unbelievable. I to, unbelievable. I need man. to check all this out. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I like I said, there was about about two years ago, like I went down this never ending rabbit hole of new wave of British heavy metal. Because I read I read books on him. I've read like two or three books on mm-hmm. New Wave of British Heavy Metal. I saw the documentary um about the uh gosh, it's by Sam Dunn is his, his name. Um and he talks a lot about the new wave of British heavy metal. But I went down this rabbit hole and I started discovering bands that, like, I'm like, who's this? And then I go on eBay or Discogs and I buy the albums and I'm spending like 80 bucks on a CD. You know, it's, you know I mean, just like, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, Discogs is going to bankrupt me if I don't get off this damn site. But there was so much stuff. I mean, there's, there's uh, Parallax, which is a great band. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost pretty envious of my new wave of British heavy metal collection because first of all, I know how much I spent on all that stuff. And 
Yeah. You know, and that's why it's like, you know, when, when my son wants to borrow some you know music, I'm like, no, 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 no. You, that does not go in your room. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll download the files and I'll send them to you and you can listen to them that way. You can look at it. I always said, don't take anything out. I don't want your fingerprints on it. That I, my, your father spent a lot of money on that stuff. You know, because it's it, because it's so rare, and a lot of stuff you can only get from the UK. You can't go to a record store, you know, the ones that still exist here, and find a Diamond Head album or find a Tank album. You can't do that. You got to go to record collection or or, or, or you know, record conventions and find that stuff. But um, yeah, you can't. You can't. Um, you can't find that stuff. Another band that really wasn't part of the new wave of British heavy metal, but they had a huge influence on a lot of those bands, was another one called Budgie, which is a great band. Mm-hmm. Um, Budgie's. I only of- know them because of the song that. Uh, actually, that's not true. I discovered them because of the song that Metallica does uh-huh. of theirs, and then I started listening to them. And that guy's voice is so high, and they remind me of Rush a lot. They do. They do remind me of Rush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but they were and, huge. Yeah, they're yeah. great. I forgot about them. Yeah, Budgie had a huge influence on a lot of bands of the new wave of British heavy metal. But the thing about Rainbow, getting back and circling back to Rainbow, was the imagery on those, especially the first two albums by Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, Rainbow and Rainbow Rising. Those, the, the imagery of those mm-hmm. two albums had such an impact on what the bands from the new wave of British heavy metal did on, on their albums you can correlate a lot of influence from Rainbow. And I think the two biggest influence, of course, Zeppelin, I think, and I, you know, obviously Purple, but I think Rainbow and Sabbath were probably the two biggest influences on that period of music. Um, just because of the, you know, with the imagery and just the style of play, you can hear a lot of Richie Blackmore. You can hear a lot of Tony Iommi in the riffs that are played on those albums. Have you heard the uh, the Ronnie James Dio tribute album, the Metallica medley? Oh it's yeah! Oh, it's awesome. Rainbow Dio, yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. The uh, Glenn Hughes version of Catch a Rainbow is is tremendous. I mean, we could do a whole podcast devoted to Glenn Hughes. Yes. I've seen him multiple times. I think he. One, he's also underrated. That album, Hughes for All, you probably know. I uh, are you talking about? From, are you talking about the Iomi record with him? No, that one's good. That's fantastic. The '96 sessions, but he does one with a guitar player. Last name is Draw. Um, it's called Hughes Draw, and it was a mid '80s. I've never, I've never heard that. Kind of, oh my god, it's so good. It's it's just one of those albums I had never heard of it before I didn't know it existed I saw it at a record store in the city New York City and I didn't buy it because I don't have a turntable but I it was on iTunes on Apple Music and I listen to it all the time when I think about it I just forgot about it when you and I were talking I thought I'd have to listen to that again and it's a great summertime album if I had known that it existed when I was a teenager in the 80s in the summer it would have been perfect because it was just right in line with when pop metal was good, which was, you know, Van Halen, 1984, that kind of stuff. And it, it's so good. And they should have been huge, and no one even knows what, even knows what it is. 
They're I'm, called Hughes Thrall, the band. I'm definitely going to check it out. I've never seen Glenn Hughes live. Um, I do. I loved his album that he did with Jason Bonham and the guitar player from Justin Bieber's band, California Breed. Yes. Yeah, that's a great yeah. album. That's a fantastic album. And I'm looking forward to the Dead Daisies record, too, with Doug Aldridge and him and Dean Castronova. That's going to be too. interesting to see what how that how his influence is on those two guys comes across on the new album. So I'm looking forward to that. I think that comes out. I think Doug said not, April or May for that album. Yeah. And he has not lost his voice. I saw oh, him awesome. doing Glenn Hughes does the music of Deep Purple. So it was just him singing. He sings a few David Coverdale songs, but mostly his songs from the Deep Purple albums. He's still got it 100%. Rob Halford still does, too. I saw them a few years ago at Barclays Arena in Brooklyn. And he can't quite do it, but he's pretty close to there. And sounds fantastic. And those guys that still are pushing 70, probably, who can still sing like they used to, you can do it every single note, but you don't really notice that his... You're not obsessed like you do sometimes with some of these older guys and you think, ah, it's not quite like it used to be. They're still just hitting it. And Rob Halford certainly is. And Glenn Hughes is too. I saw Halford the last couple of times they've come around on, you know, their last tour runs. And the song is, I think it's Painkiller that he does. Um, Of course, he's got to get that high register of singing. So he has the Harley out on stage with him. And every time I've seen him, he leans over the Harley every time he sings Painkiller. And I finally figured it out. It's because he has to lean over to get that voice from the, you know, from, from the, the core, you know, from his, from his balls. And, and he's gotta, he's gotta <laughs> lean over and say, he can't do it standing straight up anymore. But you know he got, he's got to lean over that bike in order to get that get to that high register on Painkiller. Every time I see him sing that song, he does the same thing. And I'm like, that's what he's doing. And you know, hey, listen, he's seventy some years old, or he's going to be seventy. I've got no issue with him doing that. It's not like I'm like, oh my god, you know. No. I, I mean, he, I mean, hey, whatever, whatever you got to do, man, to to make me happy and make fans happy, that's awesome. But you know, like you said, Hughes. Halford, um, you know, I think Steven Tyler still sounds good. Um, I mean, you know, there's some there's some vocalists that I think really, even living in excess, you know, were able to maintain their voice. I've always enjoyed the Coverdale Hughes Purple albums more than the Gian records. That's just me, though. Well, I'm just tired of them. So, and even the Tommy Bolin one. I think it, I, I never would have thought to listen to that in my entire life. And I was um, listening to Sirius and the, I don't know if you listen to Sirius, but the Deep Track channel, it was one of the uh, songs from that album, Come Pace the Pan. It was really good. And the guy came on and he said, you know, that's a really underrated song by Tommy Bull and uh, Deep Purple from Come Taste the Band. It really is, because I thought it was maybe a song from the current incarnation with Steve Force, which I've never listened to once. And it sounded really good. And I've listened to that album a couple times here and there over the years, and every time I think, this is 
better album than I ever would have thought that it was. And then I don't listen to it again. But yeah, Stormbringer and Burn are excellent albums. Oh, and I love them. Also, I haven't listened to them 10 million times like I did the Ian Gillen albums, so they still sound fresh to me. Yeah, Ian uh, Gillen had had uh, had a band called Gillen, right? During during the, yeah. the new wave of British heavy metal, and I I never connected with those records. I I've got two of them, and I, I think the guitar player for you know one of the oh what's his name for Maiden is is the guitar player on those records, who also came from the band White Spirit, who's another new wave of British heavy metal. Bam, who's the name of the guitar player for Maiden, uh, the newer guy? Um, oh, God. Yannick Gares? Yes, Yannick Gares. Um, he's on yeah. the, the the Gillen's uh, band albums, and he was in a band called White Spirit. That's actually got two. Oh, okay. They, they've actually got two really good uh, albums from that, from that era. And I can't think of the name for Vivian Campbell's band that he was in before before he joined Dio as a new wave of British heavy metal band. Yeah, uh, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I can't think of the name, but I lost my train of thought. But but the, those two records with Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale, I love. Because I love, uh, and that's why I think I like Richie Kotzen so much, is I love that depth of R&B in the music. And, you know, obviously with Coverdale um, and, and with Hughes, they brought that to those two albums, Burn and Stormbringer, which I think was an, an element that um, I love, you know, when you mix in all the other guys in the band and Blackmore. I think it's just an interesting evolution of Deep Purple that not a lot of people talk about because you hear Smoke on the Water, you hear Woman from Tokyo, and, you know, um, you know the other songs that are popular, um, Highway Star, and they don't really talk about those two other albums, which I think are just as important in the Deep Purple history as the as the original stuff. Yeah, and I think that everybody who loves that music and loves Deep Purple in that time period thinks the same way as you do, and I do. Because as soon as you hear that riff for Burn, that's just as iconic as any other riff that's out there, I think. Uh, just as soon as you hear it, you just know this is going to be an awesome song from start to finish. And it is. What bands from the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, outside of the Maidens and the Saxons, you know, what what's the band that you really like listening to? Well, I'm new to them, but I really like Tigers and Panthay. Yeah. I think they had a, a short career. But the, and again, they're around again now and, and some kind of incarnation. I don't know what it is, but those first few albums are really good. And I learned about them from Lars Ulrich and his radio show or podcast that he was doing. It's electric. It was on, uh, Apple Music. I don't know if it's still on, but it's probably on hiatus because they've been touring and whatever else. They're really good. And I had never thought of them. I'd heard their name, but I didn't really know who they were. And the other one is um, Venom. The, the yeah, the, the production's a little bit off, but the riffs are heavy for that time period. The, and it's just a really good album to listen to. 
the first few or the first album by Venom is completely different than the rest of the stuff by Venom too, you know, and they really got into that like speed metal, you know, as they kind of progressed. But there's a lot more melody in those first you know, couple of albums by Venom than there are later on. And um, I really like that early stuff by Venom. Um, yeah. I also like Tigers of Pantang. I mean, when you consider, I think the album was Wildcat. And then they went to Spellbound. And then the one I really like is Crazy Nights. And the last two, John Sykes plays on those records. And yeah. you, and, you, and you look at how he progressed from Tigers of Pantang to Thin Lizzy to Whitesnake to Blue Murder, you know, and, and how he really found his sound, his full sound, especially on the, the 87 Whitesnake album and the blue murder records you know but you could even hear a lot of that coming out of them in the tigers of pantang records and in cold sweat by thin lizzie and you know that the, the slided in record you know the Amer- i think he's on the american version i don't know if he's on the uk version of slided in but you know that that sound that he's developing you know when you gerald guzman who's been on the show we did a, uh, a discussion on Randy Rhodes, and he kind of correlated the John Sykes evolution to the Randy Rhodes evolution from Quiet Riot into Ozzy and how he developed his sound as he kept going. And that's a really interesting correlation, a really interesting you know, um, you know, example of how the artist is evolving because John Sykes turned into a monster guitar player, and who knew with him being in Tigers of Pantang that he would become this guitar god. Yeah, but you hear, when you listen to his leads on those um, Tigers of Pantang albums, or albums that he's on, you can tell. And then I think of that song, the White Snake, White Snake song in the Spill of the Night, that beginning, his guitar part, it gives me goosebumps every time. It does to me right now just to think about it. Yeah. Just that intro. Like, he was a serious guitar player. And Blue Murder was really fun too. Have you heard Cold Sweat by Thin Lizzy? No, I haven't. You gotta I, check. I remember this in Thin Lizzy, but yeah, I gotta check that out. Check that out. That riff and that is incredible. Incredible. So we got Venom, we got uh, Tigers of Pantang. Any other bands that you 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 recently discovered or or you you like listening to? Well, not necessarily from that era but I mean I think I told you once Orange Goblin is the closest thing that I've heard that's a new band or new they've been around for 20 years but that is of that ilk that not a lot of people know they're fantastic what was the name of the band again? Orange Goblin Orange Goblin I have to check them out yeah they're British and I just saw them at uh in New York at this small place they don't get here much they had I think six dates there because of some Trump immigration complications they couldn't get any of their equipment or their drummer over so they had to find a replacement drummer in New York three days before the show and on and on but that's great and they are just in this ilk and have a lot I don't know ten albums maybe Wow, I've yeah. been listening to them since they came out in that uh, that stoner metal 
time in the uh, early 2000s when all of those bands were coming out, but don't really sound like any of that. If you want to hear a great metal band uh, from Greece, awesome band called 1000 Mods, um, I think you'll really enjoy them. They've got three albums out, and they're expected to release a new one this year. They're a really they're a kick-ass metal band. Um, love those guys, and they're all that you know that stoner rock genre, which I don't understand. I think it I think it sounds very Sabbathy, um, and there's a lot of yeah. purple influence in it. I don't get all these subgenres. I don't like labels of all these subgenres. It's either rock, hard rock, heavy metal. That's it, and thrash. You could put yeah. th- you, know, you could probably put <laughs> yeah. thrash in there, you know. But that's I mean that's my extent of how I label a band. You know, I mean, probably five: pop rock, rock, hard rock, metal, and thrash. Don't give me any new rock, stoner rock. You know, I I, I don't want to hear it. You know, because it, I just think it waters everything down, and it and it just it confuses people. Um, that's just that's just my opinion. But and Ghost is another band that's one of my favorite bands. Ghost is right now. Yeah, I saw them open up for Maiden, and they were awesome. Mm-hmm. They were great, and I think they have some new material coming out this year too, as well. But they're they they yeah. really put on a great show, and I mean they're they're the last tour. I think their last leg, they were playing arenas, which oh yeah, I saw them in Brooklyn at the same place I saw Judas Priest, and I saw Black Sabbath there and. Their last tour, I've seen a lot of bands there. They're, they're real. I've been watching them since uh, they opened for Mastodon. And I was there to see Mastodon, who was the opening act for a band that you probably heard of, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> European, and they're kind of heavy, and I didn't like them. But um, that was when he was in Papa Emeritus One mode, I think. And I've watched, I think I've seen them 10 times. And they're so good and yes they think about Satan all the time and all that but their music the style of it is not that at all it's every influence of what we're talking about and other things too uh, you know Blue Oyster Cult and you know more pop rock stuff I think they're really good I hear, and they're starting to do really well I hear a lot of scorpions in Ghost yeah all I, of that yeah I hear you know like those you know, some of that stuff's got those big riffs like Scorpions had, you know, like that, you know, mm-hmm. o- you know, over the top, like, you know, blackout, rocky like a hurricane. It's got that element in there. You can hear it, you know, as it kind of passes through, um, you can hear a, a lot of Scorpions influence in Ghosts and a lot of UFO too as well. Yeah. 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 I, I think as, as we wrap up here, um, I love, I love talking about this stuff. There's so much to cover, but I'm going to recommend a couple bands to you. Check out Quartz. Check out Vardis. If you haven't heard Tank, check out Tank. And mm-hmm. Holocaust is oh, the Holocaust debut record. And this is another thing, too. There's, you could never name a band Holocaust in today's day and age. You could no. never. You could never. I would do never that. think to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can never do that. Like, what's your band name? Holocaust. Well, we got to change that. <laughs> so there's just no way. There's no way that even. I mean, I mean you know, and yeah, it, it, there's just no way you could possibly do it. 
but they but their debut record is awesome. It's one of the best. I think I think Angel Witch and Holocaust, those two debut records there by those two bands are incredible. And Vardis is yeah. got the, the oh and there's another band. Oh, what's the name of the band? Um, Fist. Have you heard Fist? No, from that time period. Yeah. No, I haven't. So Vardis and Fist at times will have. We'll be playing, you know, metal, and they got in certain songs a horn section. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. So, no, I'll check all this out. Yeah, I'll send you some links. I'll DM you some links and stuff like that. But I would say, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, the next time you go down the road of, you know, a new wave of British British heavy metal. Uh, rabbit hole. Stay off of eBay and Discogs, just for your own, you know, mental health and your fine, you know, in and in, in finances. Because yeah, I tell okay. you, man, I tell you, man. Like I remember, like I'm not going to buy anything. I just want to see how much it costs. You know, and then like you know, the next day I, I look at my bank account. I'm like, shit, I bought stuff on Discogs. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there, and I think about all the money I used to spend on iTunes, and now that stuff is streaming for free. It's yeah. Well, you know, I've got Amazon Music. That's my. That's who I use as my stream. Um, I don't use Spotify. I I do have an iTunes account, but I really don't do anything much with it. I use Amazon Music for me. It's to me, it sounds the best, and it's easy to navigate through everything for me at least, but I still like the physical copies. I still, you know, have a, have a stereo. I still, um, you know, have a car with a CD player in it. I mean, it's a few years old, it's, but it has a CD player. And then one of the reasons why I don't want to get rid of it is because the new cars don't have CD players anymore. So I like that physical connection to music and, you know, it's it's something that I'm trying to hang on to as long as I possibly can because I know sooner or later I'm going to have to, you know, trade in the car and get a new one, and you know, either spend six thousand dollars and having them outfit it with a CD player or just suck it up and just you know use a streaming <laughs> right. service. You know? So, but yeah, I mean, I've got all I've got a huge vinyl and CD collection, and you know. Uh, it's just it's tough you know i'm i'm a dying breed you know and most of us are dying breeds who still like that physical connection to music still like to hold the physical tangible piece of art and still like to look at the album covers um you know i know probably with you know as we talk about the classic rock bands that are going away over the next 10 years i think physical music you know by the you know by the time you know, we're at the end of this decade is going to be just just wiped out as you know it's not going to exist anymore Oh yeah, and I have my my daughters are five and three, and they love music, but they don't even know what physical music is. Everything is just streaming from Alexa upstairs in the kitchen, or my computer down here, or our phones, or our car radios, which are serious XM, and that's all they hear. And so when I talk about Accidentally, accidentally, just out of habit, I'll sometimes say, you know, this album, or, oh, I used to have this on cassette. What's a cassette? Yeah. 
Yeah. You can't even explain it to them because there's nothing that's analogous. Yeah. They don't, there's, there's nothing like that. I, I, yeah, uh, the closest. Yeah. I, mean, I, DVD. I made an effort when my son was younger, you know, he's 15 now. So probably when he was about 10, I bought him a CD player with speakers and I bought him like five CDs for Christmas. And he does stream a lot. I mean, he streams more, obviously, than the physical, but he does have a CD collection of about 30, 40 CDs. So I do think he has somewhat of the knowledge of what the physical connection means. But I, I think that's just, you know, that's just going away too. I mean, you know, it's now it's point, click, and download. And plus, music is like everywhere in the background now, whether you go to Starbucks or whether you go to Target. You, know, you walk in, and music is is being played and you're not even paying attention to, to what's the song, but you're aware of it. And I think, again, that's another thing that waters everything down. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't hold the same meaning that it had when we were growing up. When the only place that you heard music was either in your room, your friend's house, or at a party, or at a record store. That was it. Or the car. Yeah. Yeah, the car too as well, you know. So I think it's 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 interesting how how that's all changing and I don't know what that's going to mean for newer music, newer bands coming out. Um, you know, we've had several discussions on it here on the podcast. We can talk about what the problem is and I think everybody's identified what the problems are, but what's the solution and where are we going into the future with it you know and that's and that's kind of the unknown you know i mean yeah you know it's it's uh yeah it's just different it's you know buying a record was an experience when you and i were growing up you know it would we would we would we would take like the whole weekend to absorb it we'd buy it on a friday and then all weekend we'd sit in our rooms with it and just look at the cover the liner notes everything yeah and now there aren't even liner notes no. that I can find or I don't try to find them. I don't buy, like I said, I don't buy a lot of brand new stuff. But when I do, I generally do not latch on to it and I think that might be part of the reason because it's not the whole experience. And not that the music shouldn't stand alone. Of course it should and that should be enough to hook you in. But it's just not as compelling a proposition if you know what used to be. Yeah. Well, we could talk about this forever. Um, but yes, the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the new wave of British heavy metal experience is something that I encourage all rock fans who are fans of Zeppelin, Sabbath, rainbow, purple, and into Ozzy and Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer and all those bands, Megadeth, you know, even if you're not into the harder, heavier stuff, it still has an impact on what happened to music, and especially in the you know the very late '70s, '79 through like '82, '83, it had a big impact on what happened after that. So, I encourage you check out bands: Diamond Head, Tank, Angel Witch, Holocaust. Vardis, Tigers of Pantang, Praying Mantis, the list goes on, White Spirit, uh, Parallax, Quartz, Jesus, <laughs> Savage, um, 
check them all out I, and, and, and enjoy the rabbit hole when you go. Don't expect, you know, great production um, on a lot of it. Saxon, Tokyo Blade, or a couple other bands, and I know I'm forgetting some more, and I know I'm going to kick myself in the ass when I'm like, oh, I didn't mention these guys. But um, just a great, <laughs> great period of music, um, a very important part of music that really gets overlooked by a lot of people. And check it out. I mean, go on YouTube. Uh, you know, stay off Discogs. Don't be like me. <laughs> um, but enjoy it. It's a really cool part of music. If you want, after listening to this, if you want me to send you some links to some stuff that I like and that I've enjoyed, I will definitely do so. But um, enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Josh and I. Josh, thank you for doing this. Thanks for coming on. We gotta, you know, do another conversation. We gotta figure out something else to talk about. Maybe do a part two. Maybe, maybe I'll send you those links and we can talk about those bands as you kind of like absorb them and discover them. That'd be kind of cool too, as well. Whatever. But thank you again for coming yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And thanks for having me. This has been this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Well, it is a community, and that's been the goal. And as much as we have a lot of new artists on, and now we're starting to have artists such as like George Lynch or Doug Aldrich or Rudy Sarzo, Richie Kotzen. Um, you know, I still want to keep it with the people that follow me that have some knowledge about music that want to discuss music, because I think like any, like different than any other genre rock and roll is really all about the community. And once it's in your blood, it never leaves. Sure. Well, Hey everybody. Once again, this is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. That's Josh, the Decanter of Doom on Twitter. I think that's his Twitter handle, at Decanter of Doom. Is that right? That's right, yep. Check him out. Give him a follow. And like I always say, we will talk again soon. Take care, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.